Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. Banking services debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NA, or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, been a minute since he's been here, but we're thrilled to have him back because he's always sharp, always has good information. He is both an assistant professor of economics and a research fellow down at Texas Tech, which he reminded me of because I'm wearing my West Virginia shirt. Alexander Zalter, great to have you back, my friend. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm doing really well. I'm excited to be back. Also, yeah, well, Guns up. <laughs> there ain't no shortage of economic stuff to talk about. I want to start here, though, because we've talked to you about this before. And one of the reasons we love having you on is you explain it so even I can understand this stuff. This stuff gets data set heavy. It gets terminology heavy. It gets philosophical heavy when we start talking economics. Let's start common parlance and nomenclature because we're having a fight right now today as we record this. What is and isn't a recession? We talk about what is and isn't good economic. Do we have a language? I had a math teacher years ago said math is a language. Well, if math is a language, then I don't know what economics is because that's a math-based discipline. Do we have a language problem discussing economics in America right now? We have several problems when discussing economics in America right now. The recession definition one's a little bit interesting since, of course, you could define it multiple different ways. There are several U.S. statutes that say for the purposes of recording national income statistics, et cetera, we define a recession as two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. But just because that's a definition doesn't mean that that's the universally accepted definition. Economists sort of use that as a rule of thumb. But again, there's wiggle room in what we officially count as a recession. Right now is actually a really good example of why we need that wiggle room. If the GDP numbers for the second quarter in the row come in negative, we're going to be looking at a contracting economy at the same time that we don't really have any notable uptick in unemployment. The unemployment rate in the United States right now is 3.6%. That's incredibly low. It would be weird on the one hand to have a recession where you're having dropping output combined with what looks to be pretty strong labor market. So that's, that's unusual. Do we call that a recession? Do we call that a sort of retrenching of production as we sort of undo these supply chain problems? 
reasonable people can disagree. Is that part of what's going on here too, though, is we haven't had a lot of times where you have something. This this has been blowing everybody's mind for about a year now. Low unemployment, but high inflation, kind of a touchy labor market, even though unemployment's low. This is just an unusual time. Is part of the problem we're using the terminology we always use and we use the terms we always use, and it just doesn't quite fit what's really happening here because it's not normal. In many ways, the terms that we all use separately do a good job of describing the individual phenomenon. Right? We are experiencing inflation right now. Unemployment is low right now, et cetera. The problem is when you try and package it, package it all together and try and use a single all-encompassing term or concept to describe everything. Recession doesn't very clearly to me describe what's going on right now, even if you have falling output, because again, we're used to seeing rising unemployment in a recession. So that's kind of weird. At the same time, the inflationary numbers being as high as they are, at the same time you're seeing unemployment numbers being what they are, that's something that's a little bit historically strange. Now, uh, part of the reason that we find this so weird is actually the fault of us economists. We, we owe the public an apology on that one. Economists in the public square have been saying for ages, look, there's this trade-off between inflation and unemployment. Usually when one is low, the other is high. When the other one's low, the first one's high. But it's just not true. There is no inherent trade-off between the rate of joblessness on the one hand and how fast the dollar is depreciating on the other hand. You can have low inflation and good employment numbers. There's no reason those two things can't go together. And in fact, the reason that one of those inflation has gotten unhinged, I would say is more the result of bad policy decisions rather than something that's baked into the cake. Yeah, you were writing about this in uh, American Institute for Economic Research, that very thing. And you noted here, and explain it to people, because words like inflation and recession are just scary to people. They scare folks. They don't like it, especially folks that are a little bit older that have been through a recession before, or been through a downturn before, or been through the 08 financial crisis. These things are scary, but you actually put it in this, Pete. There's actually nothing really special about 2% inflation. Kind of explain and unpack that for folks a little bit. Yeah, so the central bank, the Federal Reserve, has a self-adopted 2% average inflation target. Basically, what that means is they're shooting for an average inflation rate of 2% over a number of years. But there's really nothing special about that number 2%. It's kind of like a traffic light, right? Red means stop, green means go. Is there any reason it has to be the case? Not really, right? You could envision a traffic system where red means go and green means stop. But given that we've already coordinated around one system of traffic lights, there's no sense in throwing a wrench in those particular set of gears, right? That would just cause trouble. It's the same for inflation. What we're really looking for is a given rate of change for the purchasing power of the dollar around which to coordinate expectations. So as long as everybody expects the number that the Fed actually delivers, pretty much everything's hunky-dory. It could be 2%, it could be 4%, it could even be 0%. It could even be negative, right? Slight deflation is not a problem so long as everybody knows that it's coming. So we have to get away from this idea that there's this magic one right inflation rate that we need policymakers to tinker with the economy until we hit it. In reality, markets are flexible. And as long as there's credible commitment to a given policy, we can figure things out by writing our contracts differently, adjusting the wage expectations we have when we go looking for jobs. There's a lot that we can do as long as we get credible, predictable policy. Yeah. Alexander Salter joining us, economist from Texas Tech, Young Voices contributor, superstar contributor. He's on the, you've moved up to the header, I noticed on the website, by the way. Congratulations. 
Uh, our economist friend Jericho Hill talking about the Fed, since we're using traffic as an analogy, let's just beat that to death a little bit more. He said what the Fed's doing right now is kind of like a car. You're trying to not slam into the car in front of you while not getting rear-ended by the car behind you. And that's what they're doing with the interest rates. We've been doing that for a little while now. They keep raising interest rates. They're going to probably raise them some more. Where do you think we're at in that process, if that's the analogy we're using? Are we too close to the front? Are they getting us where we're going to get rear-ended? How do you think they're doing right now as we sit today? That's a great question. My perspective on this is actually kind of contrarian in that I think that whatever the Fed is doing to its target for its key policy interest rate doesn't matter anywhere near as much as what they're doing to their balance sheet. We have this idea because economists write about it and financial journalists write about it, that the Fed controls interest rates, but they don't. They have a target range for what they want one key policy interest rate to be, but the Fed doesn't have the power to arbitrarily set the federal funds rate, the rate at which banks loan each other money on an overnight basis, right? Interest rates, even short-term interest rates are set in global capital markets. And even a very powerful central bank like the Fed is more following than leading those markets. Where I do think the Fed has more leeway is in the overall size of its balance sheet, just the total value of assets that they have on that side of their particular accounting ledger. Right now, the Federal Reserve is holding about $9 trillion in assets. For a comparison, before the financial crisis of 2008, the Fed's balance sheet was under a trillion. So over the past 10 plus years, we've seen a massive expansion in the importance of the central bank for creating money and allocating credit. And I would argue that that's not something that's economically sustainable or desirable. So if we wanna figure out whether the Fed is serious about whipping inflation or not, I think that we should be talking less about what they're doing to their interest rate target and more about whether they're actually letting those assets to roll off their books and without actually replenishing them. We need that balance sheet to come down or at minimum grow much more slowly than it has been in recent years. You wrote about it in your piece. We're linking to this in the show notes, by the way. Make sure you read this piece. It's an entirety at the American Institute for Economic Research. You talk a lot about the Fed's credibility. We talk about Congress's credibility. We're debating the Supreme Court's credibility. When it comes to the Fed, though, talking credibility, this isn't just, you know, us in the commentariat talking about it. That has a lot of real world implications when you're talking about the Fed. Just for people that don't know, why is the Fed's credibility so important when it comes to monetary policy? Absolutely. Fred credibility is incredibly important because ultimately good monetary policy is about delivering what people expect. Right. There's no one right purchasing power of the dollar. The purchasing power of the dollar could fall within a big range. What matters is that everybody has a reasonable expectation of what that number is so that they can then go out and write their contracts in financial markets with that piece of data as a given, right? The dollar in some ways is like a yardstick. If you had the definition of a yard constantly changing, you wouldn't be able to measure anything. You need some fixed unit of measurement so you know how expensive or cheap goods and services are. And ultimately, we need Fed credibility to forecast what that future purchasing power of the dollar is going to be. The problem is that the Fed's rule that it's picked, it doesn't really seem committed to in practice. So again, August 2020, the Federal Reserve adopts an average 2% inflation target. What that means is they're not trying to create 2% inflation each year. They're trying to hit 2% inflation on average over a number of years. The reason that's a problem right now is because inflation is running way hotter than 2%. So if they actually want to hit that average inflation target, assuming that we have an August 2020 start date, 
we're going to need several years of way below 2% inflation and perhaps even slight deflation. Is that credible? Can we expect central bankers to actually deliver low inflation or even deflation? Absolutely not. Monetary policymakers are terrified of deflation. Monetary policymakers are frankly not all that excited about low and predictable inflation. So they've committed themselves to a rule that based on the basic arithmetic of the scenario, they can't possibly deliver on, which means that markets, which already know that, have no reason to trust the Fed when they say, hey, we're trying to deliver 2% inflation. Markets are going to say, no, you're not. Look at what inflation is right now. There's no way that you can deliver 2% on average. So in effect, the Fed is trying to convince markets of something, uh, of a rule that the Fed itself has no buy-in for maintaining. And that's not a great place to be, right? Because when the Fed says one thing and delivers another, that's exactly when we get traffic jams in financial markets. That's exactly when we start rear-ending each other. That causes no end of economic trouble. See how you work the analogy right back in there at the end. He's a pro, folks. Uh, Alexander Salter joining us. We're talking economics. We're going to talk about that cohesion of policy like everything else. Coherent policy is important, and we don't have it. We're going to get into that more on the economy, on inflation. Alexander Salter joining us right after this break on Hurtel. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Back to Hurtel. We're continuing to talk economics with our friend Alexander Salter. He is a professor and research fellow down at Texas Tech. Uh, let's zoom back out for just a second because I think we need to get a little perspective on something. And this isn't just applying to economics. It's kind of built into our system, and we lose perspective on this a little bit, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's monetary policy, whatever. Because of our system of government, we have, compared to a lot of countries in the world, we have a lot of high turnover. We have a new president election every four years, Congress every two years. There's a lot. So getting coherent policy, it's just kind of baked into the cake of our system that coherent, consistent policy is going to be a challenge no matter what. The idea of the Fed was to be kind of a layer on top of that, but that doesn't seem to really be happening right now, does it? There's a lot of inconsistencies in terms of what we're getting in the economy. Although though we do have a lot of turnover in politicians, one thing that seems to be more or less a bipartisan consensus is deficit spending, right? Since 2020, since the coronavirus pandemic, we've run approximately $6 trillion in deficits. Those deficits were bipartisan. It's one thing for Republicans to be saying now that we have to focus on fiscal sanity and fiscal sustainability. They were voting for these blowout spending bills a year ago and two years ago. So might be good politics for one party to say that they're committed to fiscal restraint and budgetary prudence, but it's just not true. Unfortunately, we have two parties that are considered uh, committed to breaking the bank. As for what the Fed is doing, ideally, they would be able to take a longer time horizon uh, 
but really they just don't seem all that confident in what they're doing. At first they insisted inflation was transitory, then they said, okay, maybe it's here, but it's not gonna be that bad. Okay, now it's here and it's really, really bad and we need to go pedal to the metal on controlling it. Now, actually I'm okay in terms of pedal to the metal on controlling it. I am an inflation hawk myself. The problem is the rapid changes in the de facto policy regime, right? The basic stance about what monetary policymakers are actually trying to do. Talk about giving markets whiplash. How is anybody supposed to be able to form a plan about the future if monetary policymakers decide they're going to do one thing on Monday and another thing on Wednesday? So in combination with fiscal profligacy, I think that we've got a lot of money mischief coming with the central bank right now. And that goes a long way to explaining the unfortunate inflation numbers that we're seeing. And I suspect are going to continue to see. Yeah, but, you know, like we say on this program all the time, things don't happen in a vacuum. They haven't in a sequence. COVID was the crisis. COVID was the excuse. Our financial house wasn't in order before that. So our Congress and our government kind of had learned behavior from us, the voting public, that they were going to be just fine doing something like that because they've had decades and decades of learned experience that that's what you do. You spend money and make a big show of it. And then you go campaign on that big dollar sign that you voted on. That's been the reality for all of my life. I'm 42 years old from at least the 90s when I first started paying in politics. This is the game. They talk about it, kind of, but spending money is how you get things done in government. That's a generational problem more than an economic problem, isn't it? I mean, that's just kind of the cycle we're stuck in. I don't know how you unengrain that. Do you have any good ideas of how to unengrain that? Because we use that great buzzword, fiscal responsibility, but it's like raising your kid. If you didn't teach him as a kid and you didn't teach him as a teenager and you didn't teach him as a young adult, the middle-aged guy buying boats and all this stuff, you're going to have a hard time pitching financial accountability to that guy, right? Sadly, you're right. Deficit spending, spending on our means is something that has become basically entrenched in the fiscal appropriations process at this point. And I'm worried that nothing short of a bond market crackdown is going to solve it. I hope that we don't get to that point. One of the things that we're observing right now is rising interest rates across all classes of securities. That's what you would tend to expect as inflation goes up. The problem is, as interest rates go up, Uncle Sam's borrowing costs go up too. And if trends continue in terms of the rate that Uncle Sam is paying on loans, that means a larger and larger share of the discretionary portion of the government budget is just going to be paying back interest on debt already incurred. That's going to make our political fights worse, not better. So I'm actually thinking that once we get a budgetary squeeze out of all this, that's going to increase partisan rancor. And that's something that I'm personally not looking forward to. Ultimately, we have to get big spending under control. And at the end of the day, Congress is going to do what gets people elected. So I think that you're also right that part of the problem here is with we the people. We also pretend that we care a lot about fiscal sustainability and budgetary prudence, and then we just vote for politicians who spend and spend without taxing. As long as we keep on doing that, politicians are going to keep on behaving the same. So until you get the actual voting public to realize this cannot continue and you are not going to like what happens if we have a sudden stop. Until you convince a critical mass of voters of that, I'm frankly not sure how you fix the problem. Yeah, but uh, when you studied economics coming up, you also studied the history of economics. Economics is just the study of people and money, really, when you break it down, even though it's a lot of math. You know this. I know this. Anybody that's honest knows about this. The public isn't going to do anything until it hurts or they're scared it's going to hurt one or the other. And I just don't. I mean, I want to be optimistic about this, but I'm looking at the trajectories. I'm looking at some of the fiscal crises that are already baked into the cake. 
like Medicare spending, like entitlement spending, like the $6 trillion we just dumped on the economy the last two, three years. That was bipartisan, like you pointed out. Like you're looking at this stuff, and I'm a layperson. You're the economist. You tell me. I'm just looking at this like this is not a far-term problem now. This is near-term next decade, next five to 15 years. This stuff is rolling closer and closer and closer. Do you see that as an economist as well? This isn't something in the 90s where they were talking about 2020, 2030. We're in 2022. So even if you're using that 2026 number for Medicare and 2030 for the budgetary issues, man, that's the next election cycle. We're there, aren't we? We're getting pretty close. Again, interest rates are going up. We're confronting the fact that we have lots and lots of unfunded liabilities that we have to pay for, that we currently can't pay for. You're right. The way that this gets really salient for the public is that something goes wrong and all of a sudden these budget constraints start to pinch and pinch hard. The ideal scenario would be to do something about it before then. And this is one of the nice things when you're a government as opposed to a household and a business. You don't actually have to get your fiscal house in order as quickly. We could actually start to get fiscal appropriations and deficit spending under control if we just grew the federal budget more slowly. We don't even have to make cuts. If the economy is growing at 3%, assuming that it starts growing at 3% per year, federal spending can grow at something less than 3% and the debt to GDP ratio will come down on its own. On the one hand, you have the tax base growing at the economy. On the other hand, you have tax spending, right? Government spending growing. As long as this hand grows faster than this hand, you're on a fiscally sustainable trajectory. So I'm hopeful that we might be able to come to a consensus around at least that relatively minor behavior change, that relatively easy policy change before stuff starts to get really bad. There are think tanks doing important works about uh, work about passing responsible budgets, especially at the state level. And a lot of those models might be able to help us at the federal level too. One example that I like is there are several states whose uh, politicians have committed to not growing their budgets more than the combination of the sum of inflation and population growth, which basically means they're keeping government spending and inflation-adjusted dollars per person the same, basically a government spending freeze on a per capita basis. And so that might be the kind of thing that we need to implement just so we can catch our breath a little bit from these decades of deficit spending. Yeah, Alexander Salter joins. Okay, let's end on some good news though, because that was a lot of doom and gloom, and I don't like I don't like to go there, but we got to live in Realville, right? Uh, give us some positives in the economy though, because there is one of the reasons this is so weird is, and I know there's a lot of people hurting, so I don't be flipping about this, but overall, if you looked at some of the raw, the economy isn't in all that bad of shape historically. Un- unemployment is low, spending is up, consumer spending's pretty steady. Give us some good news on the economy and some things to be looking for that are positive out there as well, because we don't want to just be all doom and gloom because it's not. One of the really interesting things, like you just said, is although there appears to be an economic slowdown, labor markets aren't hurting. It's unfortunate that inflation has reduced workers' wages somewhat, especially over the past year. But I'm hopeful that as long as we have continued strong labor markets, that's going to be able to put workers in a stronger bargaining position so they can get some of that purchasing power back. So in terms of what we're going to actually get, whether the Fed manages to give us a soft lending, whether we're going to fall into a recession, however we define it, I'm keeping my eye on on labor force participation. I'm keeping my eye on unemployment. I'm keeping my eyes on all these indicators of labor market health. And right now, those look pretty good. And as long as those numbers hold up, I'm going to be comparatively optimistic about the short-term economic pain. Maybe this particular slowdown 
isn't going to hurt so much. And that's going to give us a little bit of wiggle room to also tackle the problems that we know we have to confront. Exhibit A, of course, is inflation. That number's got to come down. Yeah. Okay. So the $2 trillion questions right now, uh, we know the recession, that's not a recession that we're not, uh, to quote my buddy, Seth Mandel, he said, recession is only recession if it comes from the recession region of France. And otherwise it's just, you know, sparkling misery. But is this the worst of it? Have we peaked out? Is inflation going to come down? Is this going to be the bad one? And then we start coasting down or do we have some more bad to come yet? If you force me to make a prediction, which I'm legendarily bad at, like many economists, so I'm in good company there. If you force me to make a prediction, I'm going to say that we're going to have lackluster economic output for a couple of quarters. We're going to see unemployment go up, but not to worrying levels. And the inflation rate is going to peak in the next couple of months and start gradually coming down. I don't think that we're going to get down to 2% anytime soon. I would be shocked if we came down to 3% by the end of next year. But it is possible to make committed policy changes to start getting control over some of these variables. The central bank can control inflation without throwing a wrench in the economy's gears. It's just a matter of paying attention to that balance sheet and making sure that they shrink it responsibly. I'm also hopeful that political pressure coming up to the midterms forces the Biden administration to maybe ease off on some of its uh, more stringent anti-business restrictions that they have adopted since 2020. We might be able to uh, anticipate something like the remarkable pivot that Bill Clinton engaged in after Republican uh, Republicans in Congress gave him a whipping in 1996. So if something like that happens, we might actually be able to get some bipartisan compromises on specific regulatory issues that ease business restrictions, make it easier to produce. And remember, when it gets easier to produce, it also gets easier to work and purchase and consume. And all of those things would sort of blunt the force of whatever headwinds are against us in the economy. Yeah, but you'd have to have a uh, you have to have politicians that are astute politically, like Clinton, to look at that money train after that beat and go, "There's still time for me to jump on that and get credit for all this stuff that Congress is doing." I remember that '98 was my first election, so I remember those times well. Um, responsible shrinkage, by the way, would be an excellent name for a book. You might want to look into that. Might copyright that. Uh, he's Alexander Salter. He is a professor down at Texas Tech, brings great information. He also has a book out, Money and the Rule of Law. Go check that out. We'll link all that. Until we get you back on, my friend, it won't be as long as last time, I promise. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you and what you've got going on until we see you again on Hertel. Sure. Right now, the best place to stay in touch with me is through the writings at my website. My website is www.awsalter.com. Uh, pretty much everything I've ever written is available there. You can find my popular articles. You can even find my scholarly articles if you feel uh, feel like wading through those. You'll find my email address there. I'm happy to hear from listeners and readers. I love chatting with people via email. I don't have Twitter anymore, so you won't be able to find me on the bird site. Don't worry. Young Voices has got it, too. We'll put a link to their Twitter, which they will be putting this out. He's a prolific writer. He really is. He has stuff all over the place. Um, go look his stuff up. We love having you on, my friend. Great talking again. Uh, we may even talk during football season. We'll see how it goes. Might have to, you know, put the friendship on hold. Uh, appreciate your time, sir. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Andrew. That was great. Yes, sir. Thank you.
What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.